So we're returning to our confession and specifically this chapter on the law of God and the last paragraph in this chapter. And as you can see, it's not a long paragraph. At the same time, I'd have to say, I've not had as, as much trouble producing a lecture from any paragraph in the confession that I can remember as I've had with this one, not because it's brief and there's not a whole lot to say, but because there is really so much to say and so much rich theology uh, that, that is contained and connected to this topic that it was really difficult for me to, to fix my mind in a straight line of thinking. Now, most of you know, I really try to think in a straight line. So when it's difficult for me to think in a straight line, I really struggle. Um, and in complete transparency, some of the thoughts that I've had on this issue were literally coming out of me as I typed this this afternoon. And so if at any point you're listening and you're wondering... What are we doing here? You can at least comfort yourself by saying we're watching this man come to some conclusions in front of us. I'm going to try to, to think clearly and speak clearly and if I need to, um, abridge and amend on my feet. You know, sometimes once you begin talking, things sort of begin, become more clear. And so if that happens, that might be what I'm doing. Uh, I would almost entitle this paragraph or suggest that it would be entitled The Secret of Godliness or... The secret of Christian obedience. I think we all believe that obedience is important. We all, I think we're at least coming to an understanding of the importance of the law. And what I'm hoping is that this will at least be a springboard into some thoughts as to, to what it looks like to walk according to the law <clears throat> and how we do that as believers. Uh, and, and a lot of this information will probably continue to be unpacked in the future as, as I come to a better understanding of some of this stuff. Just to recap, we've looked at, in paragraph 1, the law at creation. We saw that God created man and, and wrote the law in his heart. In paragraphs 2 through 4, we saw the law at Sinai. God created Israel and put His law on tablets of stone. In paragraph 5, we saw that the moral law remains abiding for all people, that Christ in the gospel strengthens the obligation to the law. Now that information is useful for this evening even though I'm not going to get to it specifically. And then the last time we were together we just looked at what have historically been called the three uses of the law. Now if you've got a copy of the confession you can look right to the next chapter and you'll see the title of the next chapter, chapter 20, is the gospel and the extent of the grace thereof. So we've been going law, 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 law and then all of a sudden Lord willing, next week we'll be looking at grace. We're going straight from the law to the grace, or law and gospel. The final paragraph in this chapter is making a connection between those two things, law and gospel. A lot of people see the law and the gospel like oil and water. Never the twain shall meet. They stand one over here and one over here, and there's no way that they could ever come together. But the Scriptures give us a different story. Now, we come to something like our confession, which sort of systematizes doctrine and breaks these things down into different headings. It's good in that situation to separate law and gospel. The, but our confession in putting these two things together, I think it seems, they were, they were trying to do what Paul does 
And what Christ does in the Scriptures is put these things as close together as they can be while still maintaining a separation and a clarity of thought. Now, the connection between law and gospel and the usage of the law and the gospel are going to be different for the unbeliever than they are for the believer. But for both parties, the law and the gospel are always connected. There is a vital connection between the law and the gospel. And so I've, instead of the secret of godliness or the secret of Christian obedience, I've entitled this paragraph very simply, Law and Gospel. Now let's read this paragraph. Neither are the aforementioned uses of the law contrary to the grace of the gospel, but do sweetly comply with it. The Spirit of Christ, subduing and enabling the will of man to do that freely and cheerfully, which the will of God revealed in the law, requireth to be done. The first thing we see here is the truth stated negatively. The truth stated negatively. We, we begin with the word neither, which is made up of two words. Not either. The word either means this one or that one. The word neither means not this one and not that one. Neither this nor that. In other words, when we see the word neither, there is a, a connection of two ideas by denying both of them. The first idea is in the last paragraph that we looked at, paragraph 6, and the second idea is in what we're going to see this evening. We saw in, that, in paragraph 6 that using the law, this would be the very last portion of that paragraph, using the law of God as a restraint upon your corruptions in the manner that's described there, does not mean that you're under the law and not under grace. That's the way that paragraph ended. And I said in that lecture at the end that feeling constrained to the law of God, to be obedient to the law of God from your heart, is probably one of the greatest testimonies to the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ that there, that there is. It doesn't mean that you're under the law and not under grace because you want to obey the law of God. That's the way that paragraph concluded. So that would be negation number one on one side of this word neither. We've already studied that one. Using God's law as a restraint upon your corruptions does not necessitate that you're under the law and under grace. Now on the other side of the neither, here's the second negation in the paragraph tonight. Neither are the aforementioned uses of the law contrary to to the grace of the gospel. Now remember the three uses of the law. It's to be used as a rule of life. It's to be used as an exposer of our sins. And it's used as a restraint upon our corruptions. Those three uses, we are confessing, are not contrary to the grace of the gospel. Now why does the confession need to say this? Well, it's for the same reason the last paragraph ended the way it does or the way it did. Using the law of God as a restraint upon your corruptions doesn't imply that you're under the law and not under grace. Why do we need to say that? Because some people think that to be under the law means obligated to obey. Therefore, to be under grace means not obligated to obey. And so anyone who feels obligated to obey the law, they've come under the yoke of the law. 
They're not under the law, or they're not under grace, they're under the law. So they had, to, they had to say the opposite. No, 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 that's not what that means. We would also answer, that's not what under the law means, and that's not what under grace means, which we'll see later on. We come to this paragraph, using the law of God lawfully is not contrary to the grace of the gospel. It's not opposed to the grace of the gospel. Why does that have to be said? Because there are people who believe that the idea of grace is so contrary to the law that the two never cross paths. This is what I've called in the past hyper-justificationism. People come to the understanding of justification by faith and they stop there and they never move on past that so that they see everything through the lens or the scheme of justification. They ignore the reality and the biblical teaching of sanctification. Notice that little phrase, the grace of the gospel. Those to whom this paragraph is applicable are those who are in a state of grace. It's for Christians which tells us we've moved past justification and now we're in the realm of sanctification. In justification, law and gospel cannot mix. In sanctification, law and gospel or law and grace can only mix, which is what I hope to show you tonight. In sanctification, law and grace can only mix. They have to be together. Not for justification but in our sanctification. So we're here again, challenging this idea, which is common in our day, that says, now that I've experienced the saving work of God, I'm no longer obligated to the law. If we wanted to make up terms, we could call this under gracism. I'm not under the law. I'm under grace. What they mean to say is, I'm a Christian now. I'm not obligated to obey the law, and as we've seen, that stems from a wrong interpretation of Romans 6.14, which we've looked at in the past in detail. We've looked at even more recently. We're going to look at it again tonight because I think it's, it's that important. The confession states at this point very clearly negatively, we would confess that using the law lawfully does not mean that someone is under the law. And taking it a step further, using the law lawfully is not contrary to the grace of the gospel. Very simple. We confess it's not. Second main heading, we have the truth stated positively. Reading from the beginning, neither are the aforementioned uses of the law contrary to the grace of the gospel, but do sweetly comply with it. To put it simply, we confess that... Those three uses of the law, and that's, I'm going to summarize that by saying using the law lawfully. Those three uses of the law do sweetly comply with the grace of the gospel. So far from being contrary to grace, the uses of the law sweetly, that is agreeably, comfortably, amiably, pleasantly comply. The word comply, we don't typically use it this way, but the word comply historically meant to fulfill or to complete. It's more than just going along with it. We might would hear it put this way. The robber came into the bank and put the pistol in my side and said, open the safe, and I complied with his wishes. That's not, what the, that's not what's being put forth here. Let me illustrate the point. Imagine, if you will, a young couple who's fallen head over heels for one another. They have both on numerous occasions 
voiced their feelings to one another. They are in agreement that they desire to spend their lives together until they part in death. But alas, the young man, having asked for the girl's hand in marriage, is repeatedly denied. A circumstance which is heartbreaking for them both. On numerous occasions, their hearts soar to the heights of ecstasy as they contemplate the life they will someday share together and then plummet to the depths of despair as they are forced to hold out a little bit longer before tying the knot. And then one day, the young man, having finally obtained the blessing of her father, makes a formal proposal that she be his wife. Can you picture it? What does this young lady do? She sweetly complies. She doesn't say, well, yeah, I guess I can go along with that. She doesn't say, sure, I mean, I guess we can try to make it work if you want to. No, everything that's left to be desired in his open request, will you marry me, is met perfectly and completed by her affirmation, yes, yes, yes. The whole deal is made complete. It's settled. That's, that's sweetly complying. That's the picture here. The law is not contrary to the gospel. The law, lawfully used, sweetly complies with the grace of the gospel. Everything left to be desired in God's handing of the law to ruin sinners is met perfectly and brought to completion by the grace of the gospel at work in the believer. Again, not for their justification. That's settled in Christ's obedience. We're not talking about justification. This is an outworking of their sanctification. Now, the confession references Galatians 3.21. It uses it in a certain way. I'm going to point that out, but then I'm going to take it and run with it a little further. Galatians 3.21. Is the law contrary to the promises of God? We could say the promises of God there somewhat synonymous with or parallel with the grace of the gospel, the work of the gospel, the fullness of the gospel. Is the law contrary to that? Paul says, certainly not. So there you have it. Certainly not. We agree with the Apostle Paul. But the verse continues, For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Now think about that. He answers the question we're dealing with, but then he goes a little bit further. Here's why, or, or here's, a, here's a further explanation. If a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. What's the problem in this verse? It's not merely lawlessness. It's not merely a broken law. The problem is death. You've got a bunch of dead people. If the law, if a law was given that could give life, we just go with that. The whole problem is the giving of the law gave life to no dead sinner. And we know that death is separation from God. Our problem is being separated from God. The law is not contrary to the promises of God. It's just not suited to give life. The law was never meant to give life to dead sinners. Again, the problem isn't merely that we're lawbreakers. It's that we're dead. We often say we sin because we're sinners. Right? We're lawbreakers because we're dead in sin. This is where we return to the gospel. The confession says that the lawful use of the law isn't contrary to the grace of the gospel, but sweetly complies with it. 
The grace of the gospel, rather than doing away with God's law or making obedience null, actually serves to make obedience possible. Why? Because it addresses the root problem. The root problem is not merely obedience. The root problem is that we're dead in sins. The gospel addresses the the root problem and brings us from death to life. So God sets forth the expectation of the law and the grace of the gospel sweetly complies with that, not by just making obeyers, but by, by bringing us to life so that we willfully and gladly obey. Now the question is, how does that work? How does all this work together? Remember several things. God's law is a transcript of His own character. Therefore, God's law never changes because God never changes. God is our Creator and we are His creature. So obedience to His law is rightfully expected even for Christians. Matthew 5, 48, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And Peter repeats that as well in his epistle. Obedience to the law is expected. You were created and designed by God to render Him true, worshipful obedience. And in the Garden of Eden, before the fall, Adam and Eve were free to do that. They could do it. Why? Because they weren't separated from the life of God. They weren't dead in trespasses and sins. They could obey. Now think of the the contrariness of this in our society because most evangelicals act like obedience is is a a restraint. You know, a a governor on a car on the interstate. Well, don't, don't make me obey. Now think of it this way. Adam and Eve were free to obey. They could freely obey. Why? Because they were not dead in sin. But after the fall, sin enters the world and death through sin. Not just physical death, not just eternal death, but present spiritual death. Separation from the life of God in the soul, which is the precursor to lawlessness. The reason we're lawless and cannot obey and will not obey is because we're dead in trespasses and sins. Romans 8, 7 and 8. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Or as the King James renders it, the carnal mind is enmity against God. Now now notice the, the logical chain of depravity. The carnal mind, or the mind set on the flesh, is hostile to God. So you begin with a mind, a particular mind that produces a hostility toward God. And because it produces that hostility toward God, it does not submit to God's law. And because it does not submit to God's law, it cannot. And because it does not and cannot, therefore it cannot, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now what was first? The carnal mind. The the nature of the fallen mind in sin. That's the problem. And this is where the Scriptures must be allowed to transform our thinking. When it comes to the law of God, and especially the law in relating to the Gospel, yes, men are lawbreakers and they deserve to be punished, but that wasn't first. And that's not the root problem. Preceding the lawlessness is our natural condition in Adam which produces lawlessness. And also makes law-keeping a moral impossibility because of our willful enmity with God. Now when it comes to salvation then, 
we need not only a law keeper. It wouldn't be good enough for God to say, okay, and God could have done this, okay, I'll make another man from scratch and have this man keep the law now. That wouldn't work. Why? Because the problem wasn't merely that we were lawbreakers. It is that our very nature is corrupt. We need someone who can come and not only keep the law, but also do a work that radically reorients the very fabric of our nature. That's what we need. We have to be brought back to life from the dead. That's why Paul said, if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Just go that way. The problem is there is no law that can give life. If the law by itself could give life, we could obtain the necessary changes on our own. The problem is we're dead by nature. We don't need a law. We need life. We need life. That brings us to the gospel. The good news of the gospel is not simply that God does something to us and makes us obeyers. The good news of the gospel is that God does something in us, bringing us to life, and from that work we then obey. Just, just a few bullet points of, of truths concerning what happens when a person comes under the influences of the power of the gospel. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature, a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. And when we, be, when we are united to Christ, there is a deposit of a new divine principle in the soul of a believer, new creation. When one becomes a Christian, God gives us His Spirit. The Spirit, Christ said, dwells with you and will be in you. In that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. John 14, 23, if anyone loves me... He will keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. The principle of life in the believer is the very Spirit of God. God the Father, God the Son, through the Spirit, making their home with the believer. Dwelling in the souls of the saints of God. So that, 2 Peter 1.4, we become partakers of the divine nature. We don't become divine but we share in the blessed impartation of the Spirit of Christ. And so when it comes to living the Christian life, Philippians 2, God works in you by the Spirit. He's in you, working in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So the good news of the Gospel is not simply that God does something to us, but that He does something in us. Begetting a new creature within us in the new birth. Giving us His own Spirit to dwell with us and make us partakers of the divine nature. And working in us both to will and to do according to His good pleasure. All of those are what God does through and in the work of the gospel. Now, what does all of that have to do with the grace of the gospel? I haven't mentioned grace yet. The confession says that this the, the, the law... The uses of the law sweetly comply with the grace of the gospel. And I've mentioned before how we need to rethink our definition of grace. And I don't think that this works in every usage of the word. I'm not ready to say that. But at this point, and what I'm talking about tonight, I want to suggest to you that the grace which is operative in the gospel is the working of the Holy Spirit. Now, that sounds like something that you would say, well, yeah, yeah, right, no. I'm not saying that the grace is the work of the Holy Spirit. 
It is the working of the Holy Spirit. Or to put it another way, perhaps even more boldly, the Holy Spirit is the grace. That's what I'm, I'm arguing for. Now, why do I say that? Well, we know that grace is active power. Some people say that grace is unmerited favor. Well, grace is more than just the favor of God. It's, it's more than just the disposition of God. It's not just how God feels about His saints, because God could feel some things and that not come out of us. But we look in the Scriptures and we see that grace happens in people and things come out. It produces something. Now, the, the text that we typically run to very quickly is Titus 2. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Notice grace appears. Grace brings salvation. Grace trains us, teaches us, instructs us, educates us. Grace acts upon us. That's not a disposition. I can feel favorable towards the keys of my truck. That's not going to crank my truck. I've got to grab the keys and put them in the ignition to make it work, right? There's a difference between a disposition, unmerited favor, God feels favorably, and grace here acting, instructing, educating. Another text, 2 Corinthians 9.8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Now notice the train there. Abounding in every good work flows from having all sufficiency, which is the product of abounding grace. Grace is not God feeling favorable toward you. Grace is God acting in you, giving sufficiency so that you can abound in every good work, activity, sanctifying, sanctification, the, the, the working out of the Christian life. Consider two other texts, and we'll put these together because I think these are parallels. Colossians 1.21 For this I toil, struggling... With all His energy, that's God, His energy, that He powerfully works in me. Paul is struggling with or by means of all of God's energy. God powerfully works His energy in Paul. It's, it's this energy, God's energy, that is empowering the Apostle Paul. You see it? 1 Corinthians 15.10 I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Paul says, I worked. Paul says, the grace of God worked. Which was it? The answer is yes, it was both. The grace of God working in Paul was his working. The grace of God, 1 Corinthians 15, and God's energy, Colossians 1.29, these are both synonymous things. This is the power with which Paul labored. God's powerful grace. Grace is not only active power. Grace is synonymous with God's energy. God's power. Now, 
Here's a little theology proper quiz. What do we call all that is in God? God. All that is in God is God. God is without body, parts, or passions. There are no pieces. So when we talk about the power of God, we're not talking about something God has. We're talking about something God is. God's power is not anything other than God Himself. And so God's energy, with which Paul struggled, was not something in addition to God. It was God Himself working in Paul. In 1 Corinthians 15, grace is used practically synonymously. God's powerful energy is God's grace. The grace of the gospel, then, is not some mystical, indefinable power source that God sticks somewhere in the believer when we're not looking. When we're born again, He he inserts a power chip. That's That's not what happens. The grace of the gospel is God in the believer working. The believer is no longer separated from God. We've become the dwelling place for God the Spirit. He dwells in us. So the good news of the gospel is not simply that God does something to us, but that He does something in us. And all that He has done and is doing in us by His Spirit is called grace. Or we could say all that He's been doing in us by grace is His Spirit working in us. In other words, the grace of the gospel is God working in us. Consider another text, and this will bring us closer to the point here. Romans 6.14 For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Now what does it mean? Typically, we only hear people quote the last half. I'm not under the law, I'm under grace. But if you read the beginning of the verse, you see that what we're dealing with here is the issue of dominion and the dominion of sin. The question is, if we want to put it in the form of a question, how can we break free from the dominion of sin? You've got two options, law or grace, which we just defined as the power of God. They're synonymous. Law or the power of God. Law or grace. God can tell us what to do, or God can empower us to do it by His own working Spirit. Which one is going to allow us to break free from the dominion of sin? You've got two options. You're either under the influence of grace, or you're under the influence of a powerless law. Those are your options. Paul's saying that for the Christian, sin has no dominion. Because when it comes to sin versus obedience... We're not under the influence of a powerless external law. The letter, looking at it. You know, God said you shall not lie. What does that do to my soul? How does that alter my nature to tell me what God has said? It doesn't. I need my nature changed. The Christian is not under the dominion of sin. He's not under the influence of a powerless external law. We are under the influence of an indwelling spirit of grace. Now let's do an experiment because I just suggested that in some cases, I don't know how many, we could take grace in the scriptures, we could move that word out and just stick in the Holy Spirit. That's what I'm arguing in some places. Not all, but in in very many of them. So let's pretend for a moment that we exchanged in that verse the concept of grace with the Spirit. 
So it would read, Sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under the Spirit. We are, the idea would be, if we're under the influence of the Spirit, then we're not under the influence of the law. To be under the influence of the Spirit is to be not under the influence of the law. Consider Galatians 5.18. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And the phrase led by means willingly under the influence of. Put these two verses side by side. You are not under the law, but under grace. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. See the parallels there. Grace and the Spirit. The Spirit and grace. The grace of the Gospel is not a separate work of God. It's God Himself in the person of the Holy Spirit working in us by His omnipotent energy. That's the grace of the Gospel. Now come back to the confession. If grace, the grace of the Gospel, the the Spirit of God, is the controlling influence upon one's soul, is that person going to be a lawless person? By no means. Are they going to spurn God's law and say, well, I don't need to do that. I'm not obligated to keep that. No. Is that grace somehow contrary to the law? Will that person wallow in sin for years, unable to break free or have any power over their sin? No. Why? Because grace sweetly complies with the law and vice versa. The law sweetly complies with grace. God sets forth His requirements. The Spirit meets those requirements by working in us both to will and to do according to His good pleasure. In other words, going back to the confession now, the Spirit of Christ subduing and enabling the will of man to do that freely and cheerfully which the will of God revealed in the law requireth to be done. I hope you can see that what they said is everything I just said in about three pages. That's what I was trying to, that's what I'm trying to show. Now notice the irony here. The issue is regarding the law and the grace of the gospel. And the confession says that the use of the law sweetly complies with grace. And then as it's describing this compliance, it says the Spirit of Christ subduing. Why isn't the use of the law contrary to grace? Because the Spirit of Christ subdues and enables the will of man to do that freely and cheerfully which the will of God revealed in the law requireth to be done. The confession points us here to Ezekiel 36, 27 where God says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Grace is not contrary to the law. Grace is the power of God the Holy Spirit energizing you to obey the law. The Spirit of Christ takes dominion in the soul and enables us to do what God requires. Or we could say the grace of God takes dominion in the soul. We're not under the law. We're under grace, under the dominion of grace, the reign of grace. Or the Spirit of grace takes dominion in our souls. We're not under the law, but we're under God's mighty power. How do we break free from sin? What is is the opposite of being under the influence and the dominion of sin? That, That would be lawlessness. The opposite of that would be obedience. Now, how do we live towards and walk in obedience? 
We come under God's mighty power and He works in us both to will and to do according to His good pleasure. God's law abides and is morally binding. If you are a Christian, you are free from the bonds of sin to actually keep the law and use it lawfully. Think of it that way. Don't ask, what, what can I get away with? But think, I am one of the few that can actually, by God's power, keep His law. He hasn't simply given us a law. He's given us His Spirit. We could go there to, to John. The law came through Moses. Grace and truth through Jesus Christ. The, the revelation of it and the power to do it came through Christ. Moses couldn't give that. Christ gave it. In His death, Christ freed us from the curse and power of the law. That doesn't mean that we're no longer obligated to keep it, but that we only are now able to freely and cheerfully keep it. Now there, there is a, several texts that I just want to look at, beginning with that passage in Romans 6.14. And I'm just going to read them, and I won't add much comment, but I want you to see this theme as it kind of plays out in the book of Romans. We're just hitting high spots here because I don't think uh, we, could, we could almost say this is not Paul's main argument or we could say this is Paul's main argument. He just hits it you know, in and out like this. Either way, we don't, I'm not going to read straight through, but he says in, in that verse, "...sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace." And then in verse 18... He says, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. To be set free from sin, sin having no dominion you, over you, means that you are now a slave to righteousness. What is righteousness? It's keeping the law, obeying the law. How, could, how can I do that? Well, we've already seen you're not under the law anymore. Your, your power to keep the law and obey God is not simply found in, well, God said it. No, it's more than that. Yeah, He said it. But He also gives His Spirit that causes you to keep it. We're slaves of righteousness. Verse 18. Chapter 7, verse 4. I read this one. You've died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to Him who's been raised from the dead. That's Christ. You've come to Christ. In order that we may bear fruit for God. What's the goal? It's not just... Well, now I'm, I'm free to do whatever I want to. No, you're, you're going to continue to bear fruit. You were bearing fruit for death, verse 5. Now you're going to bear fruit for God. You have the capability as a Christian to produce fruit for God. Good, godly, righteous fruit. How can that be? Verse 6. Now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we may... Go free with no obligations on us whatsoever. No, that's not what it says. So that we may serve. Serve who? Serve God in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code or of the letter. In other words, we, we've been set free from the law as a, a condemning influence because it had no power. We've come under the power of the Holy Spirit not to simply run free, but so that we can continue to serve God. Not in that old way, in a new way. Under the power of the Spirit, the influence, the grace of God working in us. And I would say 
that hairy section in chapter 7, from 7 verse 7 to the end of the chapter, the point that Paul's making there is, is just that. The, here's what the law can do. The law can adjudicate me. It can condemn me, but it can't justify me, and it can't empower me to obedience. The law's not bad, and he goes on to say that the law's not, it's not bad. It just can't save me. That's what he's getting at. Chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, we discussed this earlier. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What does it mean to walk according to the Spirit? It means to live your life under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Christ died to the law, and we in Him, verse chapter 7, we died to the law in Him, therefore when it comes to obeying the law, we're not constrained to, to obey it just by the letter. We have His power, and we can walk according to it or walk according to the Spirit, we can obey. The righteous requirement can be fulfilled. Now, we, we know very well, verses 7 and 8, the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Why does he say that? Because he's teaching us the opposite about ourselves. Verse 9, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. If you are a Christian, not only is the law perpetually binding, not only is the law obligatory, but you and you alone have the power to keep it, you can keep it, and when you do that in the power of the Spirit, God is pleased. God looks upon that with pleasure. This one is keeping the righteous requirement of the law by my power and by my spirit. We can please God. Let's pray.